Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This week we are speaking with Professor Evan Maudsley about the maritime history of the Second World War. Evan recently won the prestigious Anderson Medal, awarded each year by the Society for Nautical Research for an outstanding book on maritime history, in this case for his book The War for the Seas, the Maritime History of World War II. It's a standout work because it's the first fully integrated account of a truly global dimension to the war. Evan traces events at sea from the first U-boat operations in 1939 all the way up to the surrender of Japan. He argues that the Allied counter-attack involved not just decisive sea battles, but a long struggle to control shipping arteries and to move armies across the sea covering all the major actions in the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, as well as those in the Narrow Seas, this book interweaves for the very first time the endeavours of the maritime forces of the British Empire, the United States, Germany, Japan, as well as those of France, Italy and Russia. I spoke to Evan to find out more about this exciting work which challenges our existing understanding of the war. For many years, Evan was Professor of International History at the University of Glasgow and is now Honorary Professorial Research Fellow there. He has written many books, all of which you should read. He's enjoyed a lifetime interest both in the maritime world and also in the political history of Russia. I enormously enjoyed speaking to him in his study in Glasgow and I hope you enjoy listening as much. Here's Evan. Evan, it's very nice of you to take the time to talk to me today. Sam, it's, it's great for calling me. Thanks, it's a pleasure. Um, I'm, I'm very, very impressed with your book, but I, I think I'm more impressed with you having the idea for the book. Why did you decide to write an overall history of the sea war? It's, it's uh, some decision, that. Yeah, I, I discussed it with my, my publishers, and, and I really proposed to them a, a, another idea, which is about the Cold Sea War, you know, the war between America and Russia. Uh, after 1945 and going through the Cuban Missile Crisis and so on. And uh, actually, I thought it was really a good idea. There was a lot of new material coming out, and I know Russian and, and so on. 
Um, but they weren't very keen on, on, on the Cold War. So uh, in the end, they said, why don't you do it on the Second World War as a whole, you know, the whole, the whole naval war? And I said, well, that's not really a great idea because, I mean, that's been done. You know, there's, there's lots, of, lots of books out there that, that are about the, uh, the war at sea. Uh, but they, they, they thought it was a good idea. So I said, I, I'll go and have a look. And I decided, in fact, that there, although there had been interesting books written about, they were, they were now getting, getting on, they're about 20 years old. There was a lot of new material coming out to, to bring in. And uh, so I thought, I thought it was actually something that I, that I could do. I, I had also just done a history, not just, but I, I had written a, a one-volume history of World War II. So, you know, I had a kind of grasp of how you, how you deal with the big picture. So that was, that was kind of how the whole the whole project emerged. Um, you talk about how to um, deal with the big picture. That's obviously one of the one of the challenges. But but there are many more, I suspect. What are the challenges of writing a, a maritime history of this war? Well, if you try to write a history of the whole war, um, you know, it's it's the, one of the problems is how do you cram all of that into one volume, which is of a, of a reasonable size. And and this this book is like. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly, fairly, fairly big book, but I, I think it does actually cover things. But you, you can't cover everything. And I think also you want to avoid making it a simple narrative. And uh, there, are, if, if, you did it, if you did it kind of month by month, it suddenly wouldn't work because what's happening in, say, Russia is very different from what's happening in, 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 the, in Western Europe. And what's happening in the Far East and the Pacific is, again, totally different. And yet they are all interconnected. So I think that's part of the challenge. Another part of the challenge is the is the source material, uh, which is better uh, not only in English but also in other languages, other languages for certain subjects. So getting material on France or Italy or Russia is more difficult than getting material on the Royal Navy or material on the United States Navy. So that was that was part of the challenge. I was also trying, you know, to be unconventional in the sense that uh, I didn't want to make it all about the U.S. Navy and the Pacific War. I was trying to bring in all aspects of the conflict, and and so that was that was that was definitely a challenge. Did you uh, balk at any of those challenges, or were you just fired up with more enthusiasm every time you met a problem? <laughs> no, I didn't really balk at any challenges. I mean, it was it was difficult. I mean, one of, one of the problems is you know you have to. I was trying to to tell a story. So suppose you want to tell the story of the French Navy. Okay, it kind of it sort of ends in 1940 when it's when it's partly sunk by the British and the Germans take over in mainland France. But, you know, if you try to go back to the French Navy later on, in later chapters, chronologically later chapters, it wouldn't really work. So I kind of dealt with all of France in one chapter, right? So you go from 1940 to 1944 with the French Navy, and then you have to go back to 1940 and the Battle of Britain, you know, that, that, that mm-hmm. side of it. So that doing that was quite complicated although you know it was a it was a challenge to overcome to do that and and make sense of it without i think losing the reader 
Yeah. And what about dealing with the kind of the, the quantity of material that's been published? That's a real problem. I mean, I, I, the biggest book I've written was on the, uh, the American Revolution. And I was just about able to deal with that. But it, it becomes exponentially, there's more material the, 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 the closer you get to the, to the present day. So the Second World War, there's an enormous amount of, of stuff published. Um, did you have a, a technique of a how to kind of deal with it all? Well, it obviously involved a lot of reading. I mean, I, 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 because I had written this book about the, the Second World War, I, I had I'd done, I'd done a lot of the background reading, and I'd written another book, which was about Pearl Harbor. So there, there were things that I, I already knew about, and it was kind of things that I didn't know about that I had to, I had to kind of fill in, you know. So I. Um, I mean, things like the French Navy, for example, or the Italian Navy are are things which require quite a lot of digging. And that was really, in, in a way, one of the most interesting things. I mean, you probably agree that if you're writing, uh, one of the really interesting things is, is finding new stuff and not just going over what you've done before. So it was it was actually quite quite satisfying to, to, to you know, I didn't know much about the French Navy. And I learned uh, a lot about it in the course of, of, of writing this, this long chapter. I actually knew a lot about the Russian Navy, so that was, that was relatively easy, kind of cramming all that into one chapter was, was, was the only real challenge there. But yeah, there are a lot of things you have to deal with for this kind of project. How long was, was your book on the American Navy just about, on the American Revolution just about sort of 1776 to uh, 1783 or did you go on beyond that? No, it was about 1783, and it started before 1776. But um, it was a, you know, a global global approach to it. Um, but it was interesting because I, I had a, a a decent foundation in my understanding of of some navies and some uh, operations of what was happening. But it made me realise what you were just talking about here is that your capacity as a, as a historian to write a book changes as you or to write any kind of book changes as the longer you are a historian. So it sounds to me like you were you were able to write this book now, which you may not have been able to write 10 years ago. Yeah, well, uh, yes, it, it's true. And also, I think I couldn't... Have, I mean, I, I, I retired in, uh, in 2010, so I actually had more time to do something that I wanted to do that I hadn't, I hadn't done before. And so that was, that was kind of a, fr- a fresh thing. The other thing was that I'm operating in, in uh, Scotland, in, uh, and, and although I have, I have good library access and there's a, there's a very good national library in Edinburgh, um, there were limits to what, to what I could actually get, you know. And, but interlibrary loans very good, and a lot of stuffs are now available on, um, uh, on online, obviously. So you can you can find source material you couldn't before. But I'm just going to say, getting back to the, um, getting back to the revolution, I've just been reading Six Six Frigates, the book about the the early oh, yeah. the early U.S. Navy, which is absolutely brilliant. It's only there isn't very much in it about the revolution. It's more about the War of 1812. And about the um, you know the Barbary pirates, but I, I I hadn't really read much about the sailing navies before, and that's been a real um, a real challenge. I've also yeah. I've also seen Hamilton, so I have <laughs> I have, a, I have a, a whole interest in um, in American politics at the time of the revolution that I didn't have before. 
Again, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating uh, the um, the way that the the politics kind of played into the birth of the navy and and where the where the money came from and um, it makes you realise how political naval na- navies are basically. Yeah, absolutely, you can't do anything I, without without the money. Yeah. I, I had no idea, but you know the the Federalists and Republicans were, were deeply divided about whether America needed a navy at all. Um, you know, you couldn't. The, the danger was if you got involved in in, uh, in building a navy, then you became a kind of imperial power, which was not what America was all about. So you get people like Jefferson and Adams arguing about about should you have a, have a navy, and yeah. uh, I, it's kind of, it's kind of fascinating. The other thing about that is that all of the um, uh, major a lot of major American ships, especially the carriers, are named after either battles of the war against the British or they're named after small you know sailing ships which fought in the early U.S. Navy against the British. So yeah. almost almost without exception, uh, they yeah. they all commemorate battles against the British Empire, which is really yeah. interesting given the the eventual alliance of 1941. One of the things, actually, before we move on to the Second World War, but the the, um, the scale of the naval challenge in uh, in the American Revolution is they were fight. It wasn't just um, naval ships fighting on oceans; they were fighting on rivers, they were fighting on lakes. There was almost every possible maritime, watery challenge was given to them. Um, you know, all the way up and sort of you know into into America as well, um, as well as what was happening in India and, and and Europe. And I thought that was particularly fascinating. Um, being able to write about you know about war, wars on rivers and wars on lakes as well as wars at sea. Yeah, that actually comes in uh, not so much in the Second World War. Or, or the, the, the area where it's quite interesting actually is Russia, where there are a, what, what are you river line um, you know operations involving uh, river fleets uh, in in the Volga, the Dnieper, uh, and elsewhere. And um, there's, there, there's a lot of that, and also in in the um, in the Russian system. Everything has to be, you know, everything has to be moved around over over the rivers to, to actually get from factories to the front and between, you know, go from the Baltic to the to the Black Sea or from the Baltic to the White Sea involves using the river system, and so that's interesting. But I mean, the the, the, the American Civil War is even more interesting for, for for river fighting. Actually, I think I mean, that, that that really is fascinating. And what makes you actually realise. Um this is so important for something like a maritime history of the Second World War, is when you consider a, an idea like seamanship, it makes you realise how many different aspects to seamanship there are. So there's the seamanship of being able to manoeuvre in rivers, to be able to deal with ice, to be able to you know um, operate in, in, in deep oceans, and the, the, the huge variety of skills and experience that needed to be, to be built up to operate where they needed to. Yes, well, that's right, and I think. But I think the other thing about it is, is that uh, certainly with the U.S. Navy, and I think well, to a to a degree to all navies, but especially the U.S. Navy, you know, ninety-five percent of of these carrier crews had never been to sea before. You know, there was a there was a handful of career officers. You know, I, I would guess twenty forty. Uh, officers on a carrier who actually had any any, any sea experience. There were a few uh, non-commissioned officers, uh, but all all the enlisted personnel were. I mean, probably a, a lot of them had never even seen the sea before, let alone taken a carrier across the Pacific to to <laughs> attack Japan. I mean, I, I think yeah. I know you know that if you think about Mahan, 
And Mahan talks about, well, how can a country be a major sea power? And one of the one of the critical things for him is that you have a seafaring nation. You know, there's a there's a tradition of working at sea through fisheries or trade or whatever. And that that that's not really true in the in the Russian case. It's not in the it's not really true in the American case either. Britain is really Britain Britain does have a you know this huge merchant navy, but a, a lot of the a lot of the crews by 1943-44 are hostilities only. And they've never been to sea either, you know. So it's. I think that although the skills are really important, but yeah. it's what's remarkable about the Allies is is they actually they actually train people in those skills, and that includes not only ships at sea; it also includes shipbuilding has to be developed with a, a whole new workforce. So I, I'm quite quite interested in that in that kind of industrial industrial maritime link, you know, how that all fits together. Because of course one thing which I think I think that in terms of the of the British, uh, what what Americans in particular I think lose sight of is just how important the merchant navy is. You know, Britain Britain actually has I don't know if Thirty or forty percent of world tonnage is is actually all under British control uh, before the war starts, and the, the Americans it's a continental state, so they really haven't got. Uh, I mean, they have they have a, a, a they have a shipping industry, but it's not uh, it isn't on the scale of, of of the British. And I think that that kind of dimension, likewise, the the colonial system, you know, the, the British already have uh, a network of bases all around the globe. Uh, when the war starts, so this, th th there's more to power, I think, than uh, just ships and the, the number of battleships and cruisers and destroyers that you have. Yeah, I do. I like this idea about people going to sea not ex not being experienced of it at all, and that's certainly something I've come across in the, in the 18th century and before. A kind of an open-eyed wonder of what they're looking at, and it's really interesting to think that that's the same same case in the Second World War. So you can't you can't assume that these guys are all professional sailors. No, I mean, that's right. But I, but I think the thing is that in a, in a way, the whole point about, about about the Second World War is that people go to war for a short period of time and then go back and do something else. You know, whereas. If you're looking at the 19th, 18th century, then people are really, they're really in the ships for life. You know, they, they go in very young and they, and they have no expectation of going anywhere else. Whereas in, in, in the Second World War, it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you went, I mean, someone in, in one of the memoirs I was reading, someone equated being on a, on a modern warship to being in a factory. You know, and I think there's some truth to that, that you're, especially a, a factory for relatively unskilled people, but where the actual workings of the factory are, are, are machinery, uh, and you need um, a certain kind of skill to deal with that, but not, not really seafaring as such. And of course, as you know, it relates to modern seafaring, which is, which is kind of, kind of, as you know, kind of invisible industry, which uh, people don't really know very much with, you know, ships with, with quite small crews which are on the whole invisible unless they get stuck in the middle of the Suez Canal. Yeah. And I suppose the the other aspect of that is all there, there was a great deal of troops being transported around. So people who were not required to do any seamanship at all, but they're still having a a, a maritime experience of the war. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean it's it's hard I, I, one thing which I which I really stress in, in in the book it's a maritime history as opposed to a naval history so i mean a, 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 a naval history being about you know how one might see the kind of 
top end of battleships, cruisers, and so on, warships uh, of, a, of, a, of a kind of recognizable type. Uh, and, and the maritime dimension is different because it, one of the things that, that maritime assumes is that it's the link between army and navy. It's the movement of troops, which, which is so important. And, and that's really, really true in the, uh, in, in the Second World War. I mean, the, 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 we talk a bit about the shipping crisis and the fact that there, there are times when the U-boats seem to be getting control of the Atlantic and so on. There's a, uh, um, there's a lack of ships available. But very often those, those crises, especially from 1942 onwards, are really symptoms of, of success rather than failure. What's happening is shipping is needed to conduct amphibious operations. It's needed to uh, transport troops from one continent to another. And because of that, there's a shortage for moving, moving commercial stuff, you know, over, overseas. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But as I say, it's, as, as, as you're suggesting, I think that the... Uh, the, the element of, of, of shipping and movement and troop movement is is so important. And one, one of the points is that the, you know, it, it's is that the sea power is, is what makes victory feasible. You know, it, it it provides the potential for for doing that. The other thing I say about maritime power and, and my kind of view of it is that uh, it's not just about ships. And in the book, I make a lot of what's called sea-air war with a, with a slash and oblique between the sea and the air, because really control of the seas in the Second World War is done partly by warships, but it's also done by land-based aircraft, it's done by you know, ship-based aircraft, um, it's made possible by uh, the capture of air bases and the building of aircraft carriers. So without, without saying, as some people might say, that you know, the, the warship is made obsolete, um, I would say that, in fact, the, the, it's a system which is, which is so remarkable. And what the Allies do really well, I think, is that they coordinate uh, land and air and sea forces more effectively than, than the other side do. Yeah. 
Um, I've always been interested in the kind of, it's almost like a ghost of sea power, like a threat of sea power. So you don't actually need to have ships present in one position to exert influence on that particular theatre. It's the threat of them being able to arrive there quite quickly. Um, and also you can see, you know, what once once in a Navy has been in a certain location, as soon as it's left, it still exerts a huge influence on on the area that it's been in so to be able to kind of pinpoint that's actually very difficult indeed and particularly for the second world war you so you know you might have have your your ships moving around like a chess piece but actually the the uh, the area of influence is is infinitely wider than that yeah no that's right and uh, i think that's uh i mean i'm what i'm working on at the moment is a book on on task force 58 which was the main pacific fast carrier force uh, and I'm looking at just just the first part of 1944, but partly because one of the things that I felt I'd not developed as fully as I might have in War for the Seas, because of the, the space available, was I didn't talk about bases and logistics as much as I could have. And if you look at America uh, going, going across the Pacific, then it is extraordinary, the, the, the base system which is created. I mean, most of the United States Navy is built in the northeastern states of the U.S., right? So they're like seven or 8,000 miles away from where the battle, battle is going to be fought. And half of the problem of, the, uh, of, of American strategy is building a system of bases across the Pacific where they can eventually attack or blockade uh, Japan um, um, you know, from, from fairly close ranges. And that does involve a, a, a huge amount of interaction with the local population and, and changing the whole nature of the, of the Pacific. But it's true also, I think, in, in, in Europe as well, that the, uh, the, the navies do have a, a huge impact. The idea of navies... Um, having influence when they're not there is also, uh, I think, interesting. But maybe, maybe more from maybe the strongest case of that is Germany. I think where where a lot of a lot of the, the um, a lot of a lot of German power is is kind of wielded by um, a fleet in being. You know, they actually have ships that they might be able to use to threaten British trade. And a, a lot of the efforts of, of the Royal Navy in those in those years are devoted to making sure that the, uh, the, the German fleet is actually, is actually contained. Another example of, of that, I, I think, is, the, is the, the, the original Allied notion of how the war would go in the Pacific. And their understanding was that it would be possible to contain Japan, to prevent, to, to prevent Japan from making aggressive steps outside China by the fact that the, the Royal Navy, possibly in Singapore, and the U.S. Navy in Pearl Harbor would be potential threats to any Japanese action uh, against British or American interests. Now, that, 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 that assumption turned out to be flawed in a number of ways, but it was an example of trying to use the threat of sea power, the threat of deterrence, as a way of containing Japanese aggression uh, in 1940 and 1941. Mm, yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, what do you... What's your view on the relative importance of the European versus the Pacific theatres? Well, I, I suppose I, 
I mean, I kind of my my, my original view. If, you, if, you, if you'd asked me when I was twenty five what I, what I thought, I probably would have said that the Pacific Theater was a lot more important than the uh, the, than the Western and, uh, and Atlantic theaters. Um, and also, the, the the kind of complicating factor for me also is that I was an historian of the Soviet Union for most of my my teaching career, and so I, I, and I I've written a couple of books about the war on the, on the Eastern Front. And so I always see that as being really kind of central to the conduct of the war as well. So when I got into writing The War for the Seas, I kind of had to think about really what was important and what wasn't important. And it seemed to me that actually the, the, the European Atlantic theater is really what is so decisively important for the Allied victory. And that isn't because... You know, it isn't because there there have been uh, there are major fleet actions in the the Atlantic or the European theater. The, the German navy is pretty small. The Italian navy is relatively uh, ineffective. So the the really the biggest the biggest battle that people know about is the pursuit of the Bismarck uh, in May of 1941, and that you know that only involved two German ships. So it was hardly you know hardly a major fleet action. Uh, whereas in the Pacific, there were three major naval battles which involved almost the entire uh, complement of the Japanese and American navies, Midway, uh, the Philippine Sea, and, and Leyte Gulf. And there were another, uh, it was almost half dozen more battles which involved capital ships. So, you know, you kind of think that actually there's a lot more going on in the Pacific uh, than there is in the Atlantic and in, uh, in, in the Mediterranean. But I think if you go away from thinking of the of the war of the seas as being about battles between ships, and you think about it in terms of maritime history, in fact the the war in Europe is is more important because uh, Germany is more important than Japan is. That you know, there's I think whatever happened, Japan was not going to dominate the world. Uh, after after the war, but Germany might have if Germany had been able to keep control of continental Europe after 1940, after the fall of France, um, it would have been extremely hard to have challenged that that that, that yeah. position of power which uh, which Germany held. It would have actually held had control of all of Europe, and probably if Britain had collapsed, Russia would not have been able to hold out as a European power. Uh, there would have been a, this huge area of resources controlled by the Germans and the Italians in the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, and a counterattack would have been impossible. So it's because of the ability to hold open the Atlantic trade routes to continue to supply a war effort uh, in, the, in, in, in the Mediterranean and to supply Britain. Uh, it's because of that that the war can continue towards an Allied victory. And I don't see the same kind of situation arising in the Pacific. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there the uh, the Russians. I'm very interested in this because your book is very um, uh, consciously about all navies in the war, so it's not just focused on on the major ones. So that you write a lot about um, the Italians, the French, and also the the, the navy of the Soviet Union, which um, I didn't know much about at all. So I was fascinated by that. Uh, yeah, nobody does. <laughs> that's, that's that's why it's quite interesting. I I I, I, I my, my, the first book I ever wrote was about the Russian navy in the Revolution. 
Um, although it was mainly about politics, but it was uh, it was uh, it was about the the sailors as a revolutionary force, and that they were. I mean, Trotsky called them the the pride and glory of the revolution because they were so revolutionary, and they were um, you know they 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 played quite a big role in spreading the the Bolshevik power. Um, so I, I I knew a lot about that, and and I in a way, and I, I then I then I wrote a book about the the war on the Eastern Front, and on purpose I didn't talk about the navy at all. Uh, because I thought that it, it, it wasn't crucial to the Soviet success. It was, you know, it was about tanks and and uh, armies and and, uh, and and the kind of conventional battles of the war. Because I thought that the navy, um, you know, the, the navy was was relatively relatively small when the war began, and uh, what, what there was was a lot of what was in the Black Sea and the Baltic was sunk by the by the Germans fairly early in the war. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I think the thing people often lose sight of is that Russia has a very long maritime tradition. Uh, it's a lot longer than the maritime tradition of Japan or of Germany uh, or of the United States. So, you know, Germany, Russia had a, had a major navy in the uh, in, in the 18th century, when J Japan and Germany were unified countries, and the American navy was very small. The, the, the Russian navy had its ups and downs, obviously, um, but at times it has been has been very big. So before 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 1900. Uh, Russia and France were regarded as as Britain's biggest enemies, in the, potentially in 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 the world. And again, of course, after 1945, the the Cold War involved the building of quite a powerful Russian navy. The problem in 1941 was that the Russia hadn't recovered from the from from the First World War and the Revolution, and was only beginning a major shipbuilding program. The navy was quite big in terms of the number of people in it, but uh, in the end, a lot of them, maybe 400,000, fought on the land front, you know, as soldiers rather than as as, as sailors. But but it is, I, it's. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it had a decisive role in winning the war, but I think it was nevertheless. It was a, it was very active at several at doing several things, and it's worth worth I think knowing about. There is there isn't yet a, a good as far as I know a good a good one volume history on on the Russian Navy and the war. Well, we talked a lot about navies. Let's just briefly finish up by talking about the importance of merchant shipping, because um, your book is as I say a maritime rather than a naval history, so it covers all aspects of it. Um, how did you tackle the the idea of the question of merchant shipping in the Second World War? Well, I learned a lot about merchant shipping. Oddly enough, I didn't. I didn't really didn't know much. You know, and, and when I started, I, I think if you lose in naval history, you know, you know about aircraft carriers and, and cruisers and destroyers. But there's a whole different branch of maritime history of people who are interested in in in, in maritime in, in in merchant navies and so on. And so, I mean, I knew I knew kind of the rough rough outlines. And I do live in Glasgow, which has this very strong maritime tradition of of, uh, of shipbuilding, mostly building merchant ships. Uh, so I think I, I I learned a lot more about that. I mean, I hadn't realized how much larger the uh, British merchant marine was than the American merchant marine, for example. I mean, America doesn't actually build very many merchant ships uh, when, when when the Second World War begins. In fact, partly because American... American prices are very high. You know, American workers are paid are paid a lot, so uh, ships are are very expensive to an outside market. But uh, what's extraordinary, I think, is both 
both how powerful the, how the, the British Merchant Navy was, how big it was, uh, how extensive it was, how far-reaching it was, how well-organized it was, but also how remarkable it was that the, the, the Americans were able, after 1941, to build this huge... Uh, um, collection of, uh, of 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 new merchant ships so you know the the liberty ship construction alone was larger than the u.s navy had been before the war started and there's a huge mass of american uh, um, merchant ships built during the war uh, which aren't really designed to last you know they, they aren't they, it's assumed they won't they're, they're not very good and they won't last uh, uh very long after the war but they're cheap and they're about ten thousand tons and, uh, and and that's true in terms of amphibious um, shipping as well. That they they, they 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 build that. Now none of that's almost none of that has survived. Um, I mean, they, they, those you know the, 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 this huge uh, amphibious navy built by the Americans uh, wasn't. It's, it, none of the, there were very few ships around here. I mean, there were, there were, I think there are no LSTs that have survived the war, um, and it's, it's kind of ephemeral, but. But I think that is extremely interesting as well. So yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, I find the whole convoy organization very interesting as well. How that works and the um, my, my general view, I think, was that as the, uh, that with, with the Atlantic War and the ship the war against shipping, that it's it tends to be exaggerated. On, on the whole, I think that the British managed manage fleet escort and anti-submarine warfare very effectively. And the German Navy was relatively weak. I mean, it began building submarines on a really large scale uh, too late. Uh, but nevertheless, it was possible for the Allies to keep the Atlantic open, both for merchant shipping and especially for the shipment of troops from west to east uh, throughout the war. And that's that to my mind, is what really facilitates uh, the eventual victory of the Allies in the West in, in the Second World War. I liked what you said about the uh, the importance of the Arctic convoys and saying, yes, they were good, but, but there was also all of the material being shipped in through Vladivostok, you know, around the other way. We, people didn't know so much about that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's, there's a very interesting Arctic convoy uh, museum in, in Westeros. I just mentioned that if, you, if you're up in the north of Scotland, uh, they, they're, they're expanding and they have a lot of, that's where a lot of the Russian convoys left from. That's, that's really interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Russian convoys, I think, are... Are are a little bit misunderstood because uh, partly because of PQ seventeen, which was a you know a, a huge disaster uh, for the Allies when most of the convoy was sunk. But it was it was kind of the exception, and so in 1943, 1944-45, the, the threats to those convoys were, were relatively limited and the losses were relatively low as well. Um, but I, th I think the other thing I think I would mention is that from that point of view, the Persian Gulf was more important than the Murmansk convoys and that the shipping line through Vladivostok uh, from the American west coast to uh, Vladivostok was the was the largest single route for taking material into Russia uh, from the outside because Japan was neutral at that time and didn't block the you know the the, the shipping route uh, up the American west coast and you know, west of Alaska and to Vladivostok. So, I mean, it's it, it was really important, and I think important, and I think it was misunderstood as well, even now. Yeah. Well, um, it, it's a fascinating book. Um, I don't think authors are congratulated enough for the achievement. So, I just like <laughs> to say, well done. I think it's brilliant. I really do. Very, I encourage everyone to go read it. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you too, Evan. Thanks a lot.
Thank you all so much for listening. I really hope you have enjoyed that episode. Do please go back and listen to all of our previous episodes, particularly if you're interested in the Second World War. We've covered a great deal of material there. You can find everything at snr.org.uk or simply Google the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Do please also check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page where there's some wonderful innovative material bringing the maritime past to your eyes in ways you've never seen before. Most recently in our use of artificial intelligence and digital artistry, wizardry I think is a better way of putting it, to bring ships' figureheads to life. Best of all, please join the Society. It doesn't cost very much, and the money you donate will help support this podcast, will help publish the Mariner's Mirror Quarterly Journal, will help preserve our maritime heritage, and best of all, if you're a member, you get to apply to come to our annual dinner on the gun deck of Nelson's HMS Victory. It's something you will never, ever forget. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.